Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for what we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus Christ went to the cross, that he could therefore pay for our sins and be raised, having made a payment in full, and uh, being able, therefore, to offer eternal life to us. We thank you, Father, we can have life through Jesus Christ, and that we also can have the privilege to share that good news with others, and that you use us to do that. Help us, Father, as we look at your word to be encouraged about the work that you have completed and the joy we have of looking forward to the work still to be done. And uh, we pray that you give us insight and understanding into your word and you would help us to have a, a clear understanding of what you've said. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, before we turn to our passage in 2 Corinthians, I just wanted to share a very significant date uh, in my life. It was December 24th, 1984. Uh, that was not when I got saved. That was uh, the number one day in my life. Um, but uh, it was also not when I got married or when any of my children were born. Um, but yet, uh, it was a very significant day in my life because it was a uh, Christmas Eve that I got a gift that had a profound impact on the outcome of my life and affected uh, uh, what I do for a living. So in 1984, of Dece December 24th, 1984, I got one of these. Some of you may know what that is. Some of you are old enough to understand. This was a Commodore 64 computer. It's my first computer. And I got, uh, I got one little game with it. It was a little cartridge. I could play this game. Anyone remember the name of this game? Play this? Nope. It's called Choplifter. Choplifter. You can see the graphics were really fantastic back then, huh? But I loved it. Loved it. It was the only game I had, but I also didn't have many games, and therefore it also spurred on some interest in learning. I actually learned to do some programming by having this computer. But my point in mentioning this this morning is um, about the power of that computer. Do you know why they called it a Commodore 64? It had 64K of RAM. It had 64 kilobytes of RAM. So I, I, I realize I need to do some translation for you because most of you don't have any concept what that means. The terms you understand today are gigabytes, right? Maybe you can appreciate megabytes, but Gigabytes, most of our phones today would have a storage device in it that has 32 or 64 gigabytes. So just think of 64 gigabytes. Well, um, contrary to what people think, it's not a metric system. It's not by thousands. It's actually by 1,024. So a kilobyte is 1,024 bytes. All right. Now a megabyte comes next, and that's 1,024 times... 1,024. That's how you get a megabyte. Now, a gigabyte is another times 1,024. So, a gigabyte is over a million times what a kilobyte is. But that system back in the day had 64 kilobytes. Now, in its day, it was a great machine, and it did a lot of things, and it was a lot of fun. It had its purpose, but... Compared to today's standards, 
It's worthless. It's nothing compared to the computers and technology that we have today. Well, in that idea of what's greater because it's new is the focus we're going to see in Corinthians 3 to or th- 2 Corinthians chapter 3 about the new covenant. Paul is going to address the old covenant, the Mosaic law and what was given to the Israelite people and how we now in Christ have the new covenant. And his point is going to be the new covenant is more glorious. And it's so glorious, the old covenant looks like it doesn't have any glory, even though at the time it did. But the new covenant is so much better and so much greater. It has greater glory. And we, as New Testament believers, have the privilege of living in the era in which we are in the new covenant era. So Paul is going to make a contrast between these two things throughout this passage. So let's look at the glorious ministry of the new covenant. Now Paul, as he starts chapter 3, is continuing to defend his ministry as an apostle and uh, to the Corinthian church because there's been some tension as we've discussed in previous weeks. So Paul is using this to uh, defend his ministry and explain how he as a minister of the gospel, a minister of the new covenant, has a glorious responsibility, a glorious ministry, and we're going to break it down into a few parts as we look at the section. So let's start by reading verses 1 through 3 and see why this new covenant ministry is so glorious. So let's see, 1 through 3, it says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of recommendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So I want you to see, first of all, the new covenant is more glorious because there is a engraving of the spirit on the hearts of believers so the law is written on the hearts of believers which he says right at the end but he's leading up to here with what he says he makes an emphasis upon the lack he does not need paper letters or letters written to recommend him as an apostle or as a preacher that was a common practice in that day It was common because especially of a lack of technology and people wouldn't know each other in faraway places, so they would bring letters that would recommend them to people they didn't know and give them opportunity to be trusted or to speak to people or people to show them hospitality. It was a common practice in that day. And and we can relate to this. Don't don't we use similar things? Even though we do have technology, think about a hiring process. If you've been a manager and you're hiring somebody and you're you have somebody you think is a really good candidate and they've done well in the interview process, what do you ask for at the end of the process? References, letters of recommendation, right? Contacts that you can call and talk to about this person you don't know. Now, usually those people they've picked are hand-picked. The best people are going to say the greatest things, right? You know you've got a problem if you get a reference and the person says something back, right? Because usually they're handpicked carefully. So we're familiar with that kind of process. It was a standard thing back in that day too. 
But Paul is saying he does not need that kind of recognition by people writing and sharing letters. He doesn't need that. And he points out to them that they, they themselves, and how the Spirit of God has worked in their lives is the evidence, is the support for his successful ministry. So instead of paper letters, he has people letters or people and their lives and how the Spirit of God has changed them is an evidence of successful ministry and his validation of his ministry as an apostle. That's what Paul is saying. He says in verse 2 that they are his letters. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. So Paul is pointing out that they are the living letter. They are the evidence of his successful ministry. And ultimately, we're told that is the work of the Spirit of God. In verse 3, it says, Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He is saying here that their lives have been changed by the Spirit of God, and that is an evidence of the validation of his ministry. Now, a couple of things I think are important to see here as we tie it into our major theme of the New Covenant. He uses right at the end here the term tablets of stone. What would he be referring to? He's referring to the Ten Commandments that were written by God and given to Moses to take to the children of Israel was the establishment of the Sinai covenant, the covenant with Israel um, that Moses carried down from the mountain and delivered to the people. So it is a contrast that he's setting up here between the old covenant and the new. But I also want you to see a couple passages that talk about this concept, and we're just going to look at them really quickly, but if you'll go with me to Ezekiel 11. Ezekiel 11 and verse 19. Ezekiel 11, 19. Talks about how God would work in the hearts of his people in the new covenant and write on their hearts. Eleven nineteen, Ezekiel, it says, And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 26. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. All right? And uh, one more, Jeremiah 31, 33. Ties them together, talking about the new covenant and God's writing on the hearts of his people. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, But this is the covenant which I will make with them, with the house of Israel, after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
So we see prophecy here in the Old Testament pointing to the establishment of the new covenant that God would write his law on their hearts. And that's what we have the beginnings of here in the new covenant in the church age, which ultimately then will uh, uh, be fulfilled when uh, the, the end times comes and after the tribulation, uh, in the tribulation period, God is going to uh, restore Israel and uh, do this work specifically also in the lives of many Israelites who will turn to the Lord and receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. But we have here the beginnings of the new covenant, how we see that God gives us his spirit. He puts within us his spirit, engraving his, his truth in our hearts so that we are not operating just under an external law, an external code of commands, but we are enabled by the Spirit of God to obey what God has written. So we are living in the new covenant, and he works in our hearts and changes us so that we demonstrate uh, the work of God in our hearts by our lives. So there is a living epistle, a, a, a living testimony that happens because of the work of God's Spirit in our lives. Now, Paul was making the point in his case that the change in the lives of the Corinthians validated his ministry as an apostle. In a similar way, in our day and age, the work of God in our lives also validates the truth of the gospel. Our lives and being changed and how we learn to trust God through difficult times and trials serves as a living witness to those around us of the grace of God. We are living epistles. We are validation of the truth of the gospel. And our lives as lived out by the power of the Spirit demonstrate to those around us the validity of the gospel. Our testimony is very important. How we live is a demonstration of God's working in our heart, or, in a negative way, a lack of it. So it is important how we live, and Paul's pointing out in the, the new covenant here, the Spirit of God is at work in our lives, and that is a demonstration of the new, the new covenant in, in operation, and it is better because of the Spirit of God working in the lives of believers. But he also points out here in 4 through 6 that uh, there is also a spirit equipping of the gospel ministers like Paul. Paul is talking here about how God equips him to do this work through the spirit, verses 4 through 6. He says, such confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who has made, also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So he talks here about the spiritual equipping of the new covenant minister. He, he says he has confidence in the Savior. He is confident in the work of Christ to equip him for this, but he is not confident, he says in verse 5, in himself he recognizes this is not a ministry he can do on his own it's not of his own power and it's not based on people saying good things about him these letters of commendation it is about the spirit of god it's not a work by himself verse 5 he says not that we are adequate uh, in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves 
He is saying here, he is not sufficient. He had asked the question, like we talked about last week, who is sufficient for this kind of ministry? And, and the, the implied answer to that question is, humanly speaking, no one is sufficient. No one is capable of doing this ministry. But here Paul is making it clear that he is sufficient, not because of himself, but because of the work of God and the equipping of God in his life. So he concludes verse 5 by emphasizing his God who has made him sufficient. It says, but our adequacy or our fitness, the idea is we're fit for this. We are able to do this work because of God. He tells us, verse 6, who made us adequate or sufficient as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. I wanted to um, draw some attention here to this concept of the letter killing and the spirit giving life. I think it's common to misunderstand what's being said here. Paul is not saying here that the spirit of the law is what matters or the intent of the law is what matters, not the specific written law. That's not his point. I mean, we use phrases like that to talk about things in our, our day, but it's capitalized spirit here. And the idea is because it's the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. It is a contrast between the Old Testament law and the New Testament or the New Covenant. So he is talking here about how the letter kills. So, so what does that mean, the letter kills? Does that mean the Old Testament is, is harmful and it's destructive? What's his point? I don't think he's saying that the law in and of itself is bad because, for example, I know he's not saying that, because he tells us in Romans that the law itself is spiritual. The problem is not the law. The problem is we're sinners, and we can't measure up to the standard of the law. We're also told in that all scripture is profitable. That means the Old Testament as well is profitable profitable for a New Testament believer. There is value in the Old Testament. We learn from it. We, we, we understand more about how God works based on what we find in it. So what does he mean to say then that the letter kills? It does seem connected to the law somehow, and I think this is how we reconcile it. The letter signifies God's written demands and the punishments for failing to obey them. And since we're all sinners, none of us can completely obey it, and therefore the law condemns us or kills us. Uh, a quote that I had read from uh, the New Bible Commentary says a very similar thing, I think is helpful. It says, the letter kills insofar as it pronounces judgment upon those who break the law. The Spirit, however, gives life because under the New Covenant, sins are forgiven and remembered no more, and people are enabled by the Spirit of God to live for God. So, the letter kills. If you're just trying to follow the Old Testament law on your own, you're not going to make it. You're going to fail. And in the New Covenant, we have the Spirit of God who regenerates us, gives us life, and enables us to live for God. So Paul points out here that he equips his servants for the ministry. We're also going to see here in 7 through 11 that 
the new covenant exceeds the glory of the Old Testament. So it has an exceeding glory. It is greater than the old. Uh, and, and he's going to then explain in 7 through 11 how that is the case. But I want to go back to my illustration for a minute to draw your attention to that. Um, today, a popular, a popular video game you could play on the, the PC would be FIFA, and, and I guess 2018 is the latest. Um, it's a soccer game, and you basically play out a soccer game on the computer, and the graphics on it are, are typically very good if your computer can handle that. This is just a sample of the screen. Now, if you notice the graphics on this game compared to my old Choplifter game, it's quite a contrast, isn't there? Significant difference. You cannot run this game on the Commodore 64. It cannot be done. It will not work. The power and capability of today's computers far exceed the computers of 30 years ago. And in a similar way, we're seeing an emphasis by Paul here that the new covenant is so much greater than the old. But I want to be careful because Paul points out the Old Testament had glory. There was glory. It wasn't bad or evil. It, it, it's good. The law is good. The problem is we're sinners and can't measure up to the standard of it. And it was intended to be temporary. It was a shadow, as Paul says, of things to come, but not the substance itself. The new covenant is permanent in contrast. So let's look here in 7 through 11 at, oh, I forgot, cell phones. That was the, uh, one of the first cell phones. I think maybe they said it was made originally in 1973. How does that thing compare to the, the cell phones of today? We, we have technology that's way smaller, way more powerful than those old things, right? But back in their day... They were really cool and had a very important purpose. But today, they're not useful anymore. Same thing with the old covenant. It was intended for a time, for a temporary purpose that's no longer needed. We live under the new covenant. And it's better, as Paul points out, because, first of all, it gives life. It regenerates us. Look at verse 7. He says, but if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently on the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? So time is short. I need to summarize some things. There's a passage in Exodus that talks about Moses going up before the Lord and getting the Ten Commandments. And when the first time he comes down, the children of Israel had committed the sin of idolatry by worshiping the golden calf. So he, in anger, uh, throws them down, destroys them, breaks them. Uh, but he goes up a second time in Exodus 34. And when he gets them the second time, he comes down. It tells us that his face is shining with radiance because he's been in the presence of God. And the the radiance of his face is so much that eventually he puts a veil to cover his face when he speaks to the children of Israel because they can't bear to look at his face. 
for the glory of it. So the, the tie-in for what Paul is saying is the old covenant did have glory. But that glory that it had as shown on the face of Moses faded over time. And that was symbolic of the fact that the Old Testament was, the, the old covenant was going to go away. But the new covenant is not going to go away. And he points out here, first of all, that the old covenant was the ministry of death, like he says, and like we talked about, because you couldn't perfectly meet the standard. You couldn't perfectly meet the standard, therefore, instead of giving life, it actually resulted in death. Now, uh, to use a IT illustration again here, if you're a service provider, you run maybe web servers for uh, people, there is a measurement talked about as far as how reliable your service is. And they speak of it in terms of nines. Have you heard this? They, they say a really excellent or the top level service is five nines. What that means is your service is running 99.999% of the time. It means you're not down more than the 0.0001% of the time, right? Now, if you translate that, the math, into minutes, that's five minutes of downtime a year. So if you're up five nines, you have an excellent service. But in terms of the Old Testament law, if you met 99.999 or 999% of it, you still failed. It requires perfection. And none of us, because we are sinners, can meet it. And instead of being 99 point something percent, the reality is actually much lower. But the Old Testament law was a ministry of death. The new, the new covenant is that of life. It results in life because our sins in Christ have been paid for. He did 100% meet the law. He did live a perfectly righteous life. He then paid for our sins by dying on the cross. He didn't have to die. He didn't deserve to die. He wasn't under the penalty of the law because he perfectly obeyed it. But yet he chose to die as our substitute. He died, was buried, and rose again, fulfilling the demands of the law, earning righteousness and, and favor that could then be credited to those who had come to believe in him. In the new covenant, we have forgiveness of sins. We have declaration of righteousness. We didn't sing the song this morning, but I love that song. His robes for mine. He is righteous, and I repent of my sin and trust in Christ, and he pays for my sins, and he gives me his righteousness. I am declared righteous in Christ. It is the new covenant, and it is glorious. It gives us life, unlike the old covenant that brought death. We also see that the new covenant uh, leads to righteousness, as I was just explaining, and not condemnation. The law resulted in condemnation. Even the best fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners and come short of the glory of God. But in the new covenant, we have the righteousness of Christ applied to our lives. It also, we're told, remains forever. 
The old covenant was temporary. It was put in place for a time until the coming of the Messiah when it would be fulfilled and therefore there'd be no need for the old covenant anymore. It's replaced by the new. We're told in verses 10 and 11 about this. He says, For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So he's talking about the new covenant is much greater, more glorious, because it remains forever. It remains forever. It has replaced the old covenant, and the new is not to be replaced. Therefore, it is more glorious. And this is where my illustration of the computers break down. Because even though my computers of today or our phones of today are so much better than those from before, five, ten years from now, these are not going to, they're going to be obsolete, right? It constantly gets better with technology. But you understand the point. The old is done away, replaced by the glorious new. And then Paul tells us that this new covenant also, therefore, gives us great Boldness. We are emboldened, he says. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Paul is telling us here in verses 12 and 13 that he is very bold. Being a New Testament a new covenant minister, he has great boldness because of this hope that he has. What's the hope? The word hope doesn't mean like we use it often in our day and age, like I hope it's going to work out. The idea is that of confident expectation. We know that Christ has died for us, has raised to give us new life and that we have eternal life through him. We have the guarantee of that through the Holy Spirit indwelling us and we look forward to the final fulfillment of that salvation. That's our hope. We're looking forward with confident expectation that God will finish the work he has started. So Paul says, therefore, he is bold and he contrasts that to Moses. In Moses' day, he had to put a veil over his face because the people couldn't look at him because of their sinfulness and the law's inability ultimately to take away their sin. They couldn't look on Moses and Moses therefore had to put a veil over his face and speak to him through the veil. Paul says, we don't have a veil now. We can boldly proclaim Christ. You can come to Christ, have your sins forgiven, and directly communicate with God yourself. There is great boldness in the new covenant. And he says, barriers are removed. The veil has been taken away. Look at 14 to 16. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the old covenant, it is, I'm sorry, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. So for those who remain in their sin, there's a veil. You don't have full access to God. Your sin prevents you from understanding and appreciating and seeking and being in the presence of the glory of God. You can't because of your sin. It would be destructive. Remember, even Moses, when he asked to see the glory of the Lord, he had to be covered 
to, to see the hinder parts of the Lord as he passed by because sinful man cannot stand in the presence of God. But when we come to Christ, our sins are forgiven. We can enjoy and participate ultimately in the glory of God. That veil is taken away in salvation. And he also says the bondage is removed. Verse 17. He says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When we are in Christ, the bondage of sin is stopped. I don't think this is a light in, in Christ. If you're a believer, you have complete license to do whatever you want. That's not his point. His point is the bondage of sin has been stopped or broken. We're freed from the shackles of sin. We can now approach God boldly. Because of the work of Christ, there is great liberty. We have freedom, and therefore this is a glorious new covenant. And lastly, we see that he talks about the effect of the Spirit's transformation in the believer's life. Notice how we go from glory to glory, he says in verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, because we're in Christ, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So he is saying here, we as New Testament believers can behold the glory of God. The veil's gone with unveiled face. We read the scriptures, God's Spirit illumines us, we understand, we, we can appreciate and participate in the glory of God, which ultimately the final stage What's the final stage of salvation called? Glorification. We get to enjoy the glory of God without the effects of sin. Right now we're battling with still some resident effects of sin in this world, but eventually, eventually we'll enjoy it without the presence, even the presence of sin when we are glorified. But we even now behold the glory of God and we're told we are being transformed. There is a changing that takes place and this work is being done by the Spirit. We are being transformed into the image of Christ. The Spirit of God works on the children of God to change us to be like Christ. And he describes it here as glory to glory, but another way to understand that would be an ever increasing glory the spirit of god is at work in the life of the believer and he's changing us to be more like christ and it's getting us closer and closer and closer to christ likeness if we're his children it is a wonderful and glorious new covenant that we have the privilege to participate in we are told that we are living letters. This work of God taking place in our lives is a demonstration known and read, it says, by all men. People see the transformation of God in our lives. We are equipped to take the gospel message. Though Paul was an apostle and had special equipping, we're also told that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Under the new covenant, we've been equipped. The new covenant, we should rejoice in because it's glorious. It is a glorious new covenant. It's not going to be replaced. It's permanent. And we have in it boldness to speak for Christ. Barriers are removed in our relationship with God 
These are all things for which we should rejoice and take advantage of. And ultimately, our focus as believers is this ongoing daily transformation by the Spirit of God. And how does that transformation take place? What does the Spirit of God use to do this transformation? The Word of God. Where do we behold the glory of God? In the Word of God. God's Spirit uses His Word, which reveals to us who He is, to change us into the image of Christ. Therefore, we have a great need to be actively in the Word of God. We need to be, and I know you're all here today, except those who might be hearing on a podcast or something. We need to be under the preaching of the Word of God. And we need to be active in prayer, seeking the Lord that he would change us. This is the ministry of the New Covenant, and it is glorious. We should thank God for it, and we should actively pursue his transformation on a daily basis into a greater Christ-likeness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the great privilege it is to be a New Testament believer, to be part of the new covenant. We know there are things you're still working on that will be fulfilled later, but we thank you for the privilege we have to have access to you through Christ. Father, this is such a great and glorious privilege Father, we want everyone to be part of it. Father, if there's someone here who's not yet been forgiven of their sins, who's not truly been converted to Christ, we pray that you would open their understanding. Father, we pray that you remove that veil. You'd, you'd, you'd give them understanding, help them to come to trust in Christ, repenting of their sin, and help them to enjoy this glorious privilege of the new covenant the the relationship we can have with you as well as service to you for those who have father we pray that you'd give us greater boldness this is so great we should be talking about it we should be sharing this news help us to boldly do that enthusiastically share what you're doing in our lives and we pray that we would see others come to trust in christ from our families our neighborhoods surrounding our church. Help us, Father, to be faithful to submit to you on a daily basis, to be in your word, listening to the preaching and teaching of your word, and to be eagerly praying for your transformation in our lives. And we ask these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.